0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions about depression, suicide, animal cruelty, and intimate partner abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Relationships oftentimes seem fine, even loving, when viewing them from the outside it can be difficult to know what may be going on behind closed doors. For one woman, her relationship began this way, with mostly everyone thinking she'd found a man whose future value could allow them to lead a very charmed life. Not long after they began dating, cracks in the relationship began to surface. Soon, people close to the couple witnessed disturbing behavior that made them extremely uncomfortable. When the woman went missing, some people quickly pointed the finger at her husband. Family members and investigators would be in for a very long journey to find out what happened, and they would be utterly flabbergasted more than once by discoveries made during the investigation into her disappearance. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Gail Katz-Bierenbaum. The Upper East Side of Manhattan is a place of whimsy, opulence, and wealth. Without a hefty income, your stint on the Upper East Side will be short-lived. Crowded with a population of doctors, lawyers, old money, and new fame, the Upper East Side is an icon of fabulous living and elaborate lifestyles. Though behind closed doors, things are not always as perfect as they seem. On the evening of July 9th, 1985, Robert Bierenbaum, a young local surgeon, went into a New York police station close to his apartment around 9 in the evening. He told the front desk that he needed to file a missing persons report. Robert conveyed that he had not seen his wife since she left after an argument they'd had that morning, and he was worried about her. Robert was immediately referred to Detective Vincent Daslis, who interviewed him at length. Gail Katz was born on March 8, 1956, to her loving parents. Gail had two siblings, her brother Stephen and her sister Elaine, who was also Gail's very best friend. The family lived together in Brooklyn and had what appeared to be a picturesque life. Gail was beautiful, strong, sweet, creative, and had a loving nature. Elaine described her sister as being full of life and always wanting to be doing something. Gail seemed extremely happy at times, but sometimes she appeared to be in a very dark place. Though the term was not used as often and was even less understood at the time, Gail struggled with bouts of depression that could send her into panicked episodes. They weren't common though, and Elaine recalls that Gail did her best to live with them. After graduating from high school, Gail decided to attend college and plan to study psychology. She was accepted at NYU, and shortly after high school graduation, she moved on campus. Not long after college began, Gail met and fell in love with a rock musician from New York. She adored her boyfriend. They had dreams of getting married and touring the world together while he pursued music. The relationship lasted for a while, but eventually, it ended against Gail's wishes. This marked a very dramatic turn in Gail's life. Trying to start fresh, Gail continued her schooling, hoping to lose herself in classes and work. Despite the outward image of perfection that Gail was projecting, inside, she was falling apart. One night, while in a depressive episode, Gail attempted to take her own life. Though she failed, her sister Elaine recalled that Gail never really bounced back from that night. Despite this, Gail ardently attempted to fake it. She began working at an ad agency and worked her way up the ladder. Gail's sweet and loving disposition made her a joy to work with and helped her achieve success at work. It wasn't long after starting her career before Gail was introduced by some friends to Robert Bierenbaum, a medical student in the area. Robert was everything a parent could hope for. He came from a good family, had amazing future value, and would be able to provide for himself and his family with abounding ease. After meeting Robert, Gail fell in love quickly. Robert Bierenbaum grew up in West Orange, New Jersey, where he lived with his upper middle-class family. His father worked as a local physician. Robert was a brilliant student, who soared above and beyond the expectations of a typical high school student. In his senior year of high school, Robert decided that he wanted to become a pilot. He took lessons, practiced, and earned his pilot's license while still in high school. Robert had a passion for flying, but felt immense pressure from his father to follow in his footsteps and pursue medicine in order to be a good provider. Robert finished his undergrad and then moved on to Albany Medical School, after which time he became a surgical resident. It was at this point that mutual friends introduced Robert and Gail. Gail was fascinated by Robert, though he may have been slightly unkempt and awkward, He was multi-talented and intriguing. He was smart, spoke multiple languages, played guitar, was a great cook, loved skiing, and was a licensed pilot. In fact, one of their first dates began with a signature pickup line. Robert asked Gail, would you like to get high tonight? He then proceeded to fly her around the city of Manhattan on a rented Cessna airplane. Gail was enamored. Robert and Gail began dating shortly after meeting and everything seemed perfect, but red flags began popping up almost immediately. Friends and relatives of Gail recall catching glimpses of a controlling and domineering Robert, which was far from the image that Gail had painted for them. Elaine, Gail's sister, told ABC's 2020 that she recalled a very specific date night that made her wary of Gail's new man. Elaine and Gail went on a double date eating at a local sushi restaurant. Elaine watched in disbelief as Robert began using his chopsticks to feed an obviously uncomfortable Gail. Then, Elaine said Robert began feeding her sushi off of his chopsticks. Caught completely off guard, Elaine ate the sushi at the end of Robert's chopsticks, but knew from that moment on that something was wrong with her sister's new boyfriend. Others who knew the couple recalled Robert always wanting to know exactly where Gail was and what she was doing. One of Gail's childhood best friends witnessed Robert demanding that Gail sit on his lap during dinner, despite her openly not wanting to. Despite the red flags observed by Gail's friends and family, Gail continued dating Robert, and in 1982, the pair got engaged. Elaine, however, was still apprehensive about the match. Gail assured her sister that she would be okay and that regardless of the weird things that Robert does, she was kind, loving, and smart enough to make everything work out. This facade would only last a short time. Late one night, Elaine received a call from Gail who was frantic and begging her to come over. Elaine immediately headed over to Gail and Robert's apartment where she found Gail standing outside on the sidewalk, sobbing and holding her cat. Elaine asked Gail what was wrong, and Gail told her that Robert had tried to kill her cat. Apparently, he had become jealous over the love and affection that Gail had been showing her cat. Gail said that Robert took her cat into the bathroom and held its head underwater. Gail rescued the cat, called her sister, and ran out the door. This was not the first time Robert had done this either. Gail was aware that Robert had killed a cat belonging to his ex-girlfriend while they were dating. Robert said it was accidental, but after this incident, Gail knew better. Gail begged Elaine to take her cat to avoid Robert hurting it again. Then, much to Elaine's disappointment, Gail told her that she was going back upstairs to be with Robert. Elaine pleaded with her sister, asking her to leave Robert once and for all, and telling her that this only went to show that Robert was a violent person who could also harm her. Gail reassured her sister that Robert was just jealous about the cat, and with it gone, things would go back to normal. Hesitant. But unsure of what else to do, Elaine took the cat and left Gail to return to her apartment. On August 29th, 1982, Robert and Gail got married. The pair began their extended honeymoon in Crete, Greece, and then returned home to New York to live the upper-class lifestyle they had always dreamed of. The couple traveled with friends a lot, and Gail adored their lifestyle. It wasn't long, however, until there was major trouble in their relationship. In January of 1983, Robert and Gail moved to an apartment on the Upper East Side. Living on East 85th Street, the couple were staying in the hub of Upper Class New York, though not without some financial help. Robert's parents had agreed to pay their rent while Robert was in residency at Maimodides Medical Center. After he finished his residency, Robert had dreams of opening his own practice. Despite their rent being covered, money was tight in the Bierenbaum household. As a resident, Robert wasn't making enough to support their lifestyle, and Gail was still in school. To help with finances, Gail posted an ad to work as an assistant. Soon, she found herself working for an Upper East Side woman. After that, she began working for Francesca Beale, a hotshot attorney. Outsiders would easily believe that Gail and Robert had a picture-perfect life, but those close to the couple, both geographically and relationally, knew otherwise. Neighbors of the Bierenbaums recalled that Gail would frequently come over to do schoolwork while her husband was home. One neighbor in particular said that Gail confided in him that she would get really nervous trying to do schoolwork with him at home. She also told him that Robert was becoming verbally abusive and would scream at her endlessly for the slightest trespass. Gail's friends and family were horrified when they began to hear about laws that Robert began to implement for Gail. These laws included how she could dress, how she should speak to him and others, and what she was allowed to do. Elaine Katz recalled from multiple sources the extent of control Robert wanted. One incident in particular perfectly demonstrated this. While Elaine was at her sister's apartment, Gail stood up and walked over to the wall to turn a light switch on. Robert met her at the wall, caught her hand in his, and stopped her, then turned the light switch on himself. It was obvious that he wanted total control over Gail. A year into their marriage, Gail became more open about being unhappy in her relationship with Robert. She told her sister and friends that Robert was controlling, demanding, and absent. Neighbors also complained that Gail and Robert fought frequently and loudly. Then, one day, a fight broke out between the couple that exposed the level of dangerous violence Robert was capable of. One of Robert's most ardent laws for Gail was that she was not allowed to smoke cigarettes. However, with the stress of a failing marriage, tight finances, and difficult schooling, Gail would regularly smoke outside on their balcony while Robert was at work. On November 9, 1983, Gail thought that Robert had left for work. She headed out to the balcony to smoke. Suddenly, Gail heard a door open behind her and quickly realized that she was not alone. Standing in the living room, Robert saw Gail with a cigarette in her hand. This enraged him. With frightening ease, Robert bounded over the living room furniture, crossing the room with a terrifying quickness. He snatched away Gail's cigarette and then began beating her. As Gail dropped to the ground, Robert began to strangle her. As she lost consciousness, Robert's anger began to subside. Realizing the seriousness of what he had just done to his wife, Robert began to resuscitate Gail. As she regained consciousness, Robert profusely apologized to his wife and promised that he would never do it again. Terrified and doubting the legitimacy of his promise, Gail walked to the nearest police station and reported the incident. She arrived at the 19th Precinct, New York Police Department and demanded to file a report of assault. A low-ranking police aide came out to help her, though not much was done. The aide took Gail's statement and told her she was free to go. Unfortunately, the report went uninvestigated and Gail was left to return home to her abuser. When Gail returned home again, Robert repeatedly apologized for what he'd done. Gail told him that he only had two options moving forward. He will go to therapy, or she will leave. Robert agreed and began meeting with a psychiatrist named Dr. Stone. Gail was pleased by Robert's choice to see someone, and things seemed to calm down. Time passed, and everything seemed normal on the outside. However, on July 6 of 1985... Gail's childhood friend Denise went to the city to hang out with Gail at the Museum of Modern Art. The pair walked around for a while before sitting down to chat and read the newspaper. Denise saw that Gail was specifically looking through the real estate section of the newspaper. She asked if Gail and Robert were planning on moving, but Gail responded with unexpected news. She told Denise that she was looking for her own place in preparation for leaving Robert. Denise was thrilled at the news. For years, she had been advising Gail to leave her loveless and dangerous marriage, but Gail always insisted that she was fine and that she could keep Robert in line. Apparently, however, the relationship had gotten very bad to the point of making Gail miserable. Denise encouraged Gail and told her that she would be there for her whenever she needed. The friends then parted ways That would be the last time Denise would ever see Gail again. I'm wearing Warby Parker eyeglasses as I record this. These are my third pair. Now I have a pair for my nightstand, my car, and my office. I'm a little obsessed. With Warby Parker's free home try-on program, You just take a simple quiz at warbyparker.com, select five pairs of glasses, and they'll be shipped to you for free. You can keep them for five days while you decide which pair you like best. Ship the sample glasses back using the prepaid shipping label, then go to the website and select the pair of glasses you liked the most. Not long after that, you'll have a brand new pair of Warby Parker glasses. The process to order is so simple and all three pairs of Warby Parker glasses that I own are stylish, well-made, and fit my face perfectly. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program Order five pairs of glasses to try on at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. They ship free and include a prepaid return shipping label. Don't let your FSA or HSA dollars go to waste. Put them to good use on Warby Parker prescription glasses, prescription sunglasses, contact lenses, and eye exams. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com murderish two out of three americans live with digestive discomfort don't let this be you with seeds daily symbiotic you're getting a broad spectrum two-in-one probiotic plus prebiotic with a proprietary formula that goes far beyond benefiting your gut with seed you're getting benefits that include gi function skin and heart health gut immune function and more it sucks feeling bloated or full for too long With Seed's Daily Symbiotic, you can ease these symptoms and start feeling like yourself again. The kombucha and kimchi you've been consuming, though nutritious, doesn't even qualify as a probiotic according to science. It's time to start taking a probiotic that many people report improved their digestion within 24 to 48 hours. My husband's been taking Seed's Daily Symbiotic for a few weeks now, and he's noticed feeling less bloated. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com murderish and use code murderish to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's daily symbiotic. That's seed.com murderish and use code murderish. We carry a million thoughts in our minds every day. To-do lists, appointments, projects, you name it. It's easy to lose focus and become overwhelmed. And sometimes you just need a few minutes to clear your head and refocus. I'm partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you some options that promote well-being. With Calm's guided daily meditations, my husband and I clear our heads and soak in a little me time while we're at it. If you need help falling asleep, Calm has imaginative sleep stories that will have you drifting off into dreamland. My eight-year-old listens to a different story almost every night, and it's been so helpful in getting her to sleep faster. Do what over 100 million people around the world have done, and use Calm to sleep more, stress less, and live better. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering a special limited-time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com murderish. Go to calm.com murderish for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com murderish. The morning of July 7th began like any other day. Gail and Robert talked through their day, which included a birthday party for Robert's nephew. According to neighbors, however, there was an incredibly loud fight that occurred sometime mid-morning. While neighbors had grown accustomed to the constant arguing, this fight was odd. Unlike most of Gail and Robert's arguments, which would escalate and then de-escalate, this fight began loudly and then suddenly, It was silent. Later that day, Robert left the apartment in the afternoon for a few hours before returning home. He then left once more to go to his nephew's birthday party. His family noticed that Gail wasn't with him. Robert told them that they had an argument earlier in the day and that Gail had walked out of their apartment in a huff and he hadn't seen her since. At some point, Robert began calling some of Gail's friends and family members. He called Gail's mom and asked if she was there, but she wasn't. Robert also called Denise Gail's childhood friend. Denise told ABC's 2020 that Robert called and asked if Gail was at her house or if she had called her that day. Denise told Robert that she hadn't seen or heard from Gail since the previous day when they were at the museum together. As Denise hung up the phone, Her heart was in her throat as she thought, oh my God, he has killed her. Apparently, Denise was not the first person to think that Robert may have killed Gail. Elaine Katz remembered a time when Gail confided in her about something Robert's therapist had sent to her. Not too long after Robert began seeing Dr. Stone, Gail received a letter from the therapist. The contents of the letter were shocking. In it, Dr. Stone explained to Gail that he believed she was in imminent danger. Dr. Stone wrote that Robert was not in control of himself, and that he had hair-thin triggers that led to explosive and violent outbursts of rage. Dr. Stone told Gail that it was not safe for her to continue living with Robert, and he advised that she move out immediately, until Robert could get a better grasp on his anger. This was the only letter that Dr. Stone had ever written to a patient or their spouse. Gail had the letter for an entire year before showing it to her sister. Elaine was bewildered by the fact that Gail had stayed with Robert after receiving such an alarming warning letter. Gail, however, explained that she had been holding the letter over Robert's head. She had apparently told Robert about the letter immediately and she promised him that should something happen to her, she would make sure the letter got published to ruin both his reputation and his career. Gail was also still considering a divorce at the time, and she believed she had all the power. Though nobody had seen or heard from Gail since the 7th of July, Robert waited two days to report her missing. Robert reported to authorities that Gail had come home sometime over the weekend but that they had another fight Monday morning that caused her to walk out. Robert spoke with an investigator to figure out what the next steps were in the search for Gail, and he provided some theories of his own. Robert said that Gail had been struggling with drugs and that she may have gotten twisted up in a drug deal gone wrong. He also said that Gail was mentally unstable and that she could have just run off or possibly killed herself. Robert was allowed to go home that night while investigators began looking into Gail's disappearance. Within days, Gail's friends and family had plastered Central Park with missing persons flyers featuring a photo of Gail. Robert had mentioned to authorities that Gail went to Central Park to cool off after their argument. Despite the hundreds of flyers posted in the area, nobody had seen Gail at Central Park the day she went missing. Robert's family corroborated his claim that Gail had gone crazy and likely ran off looking for drugs. Meanwhile, the Katz family continued to pour everything they had into searching for Gail. Gail's family knew that she had been seeing a therapist and was in a good space mentally. They also knew that Gail was not doing drugs and claimed the Bierenbaums were just saying whatever they could to make Robert appear innocent. Weeks passed without any updates on Gail's whereabouts. During that time, many people noticed that Robert didn't seem too distraught over his wife's disappearance. In fact, he was reportedly spotted multiple times in the Hamptons, partying, drinking, dancing, and even dating. Robert was openly dating a co-worker, Karen Kirwana. Karen, who was rightfully concerned about the fact that his wife was missing, questioned Robert about Gail. Robert apparently told Karen that he knew Gail had simply left him and moved across the country to California, where she was working as a waitress. He told Karen that his family had hired a private investigator and that the PI had seen Gail at a diner in Los Angeles. He also told Karen that detectives had thoroughly investigated him and that he had been cleared of any wrongdoing. Despite Robert's confidence that he was cleared by investigators, nothing was further from the truth. From the get-go, Robert had been hesitant to work with investigators, and he was defiant when they asked to look inside of his apartment. He had been difficult to work with and didn't seem like a husband who wanted to make sure his wife was okay. Unfortunately, there wasn't much investigators could do. They didn't have anything solid as a basis for an arrest. Days passed, then weeks, then months. Gail had been missing for a year and investigators were at a standstill. At this point, however, they had not given up hope. Believing the case needed to be reviewed by a fresh set of eyes, the case was given to lead investigator Andy Rosenweig. Rosenweig began reviewing Gail's case and he came up with an idea. There were a few hours which were unaccounted for in Robert's retelling of his day on July 7, 1985. Because he was a licensed pilot, Rosenweig took steps to find out if he could connect Robert with an airport on the day of Gail's disappearance. The first couple of airports that investigators looked into were small privately owned airports that rented out small aircrafts to licensed pilots. Investigators came up empty initially. When they went to Essex County Airport, however, investigators made a shocking discovery. On the afternoon of July 7, 1985, the day Gail was presumed to have disappeared, Robert rented a plane, signed a flight itinerary, and spent just over an hour and a half flying. Not only did they have witnesses who spoke with Robert that day, they also had a flight log that was time-stamped dated and signed by Robert. This discovery directly contradicted a statement Robert had made to authorities. When asked what he did the day of Gail's disappearance, Robert told investigators that he had stayed at the apartment from the time Gail allegedly walked out in the morning until 5.30 p.m. when he left for his nephew's birthday party. The flight log showed this was not true. While this discovery seems like it should have turned the investigation on its head, it didn't really do much besides confirm what most people assumed. Robert had something to do with Gail's disappearance. Unfortunately, the district attorney, who had partnered with the NYPD on the case, said that all the evidence they had was only suggestive and circumstantial. He told the Katz family that if they tried him with the evidence they had, it would likely end with Robert Bierenbaum walking free. Then, in May of 1989, three years after the case went cold, a grim discovery reignited the case. Police were called one morning when the torso of a woman with no arms, legs, or head washed up on the shore of Staten Island, just north of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Thinking it may belong to Gail, authorities sent for an x-ray of the torso and it was quickly deemed a match. Unfortunately, investigators could not glean any useful information from the body in order to build a strong enough case against Robert. With nothing more than circumstantial evidence to go off of, Gail's disappearance case was shelved. Though this devastated her family, they never stopped working to bring Robert to justice. Gail's sister Elaine made it her personal mission to ensure that Robert's life was haunted by Gail. Elaine would call any employer of Robert's and tell them what happened to his wife. She would clip newspaper headlines about him and send them to his coworkers and neighbors. She even called Robert's home phone and left messages telling him that she would not rest until he was behind bars. Eventually, Robert had had enough of Elaine's harassment, and he moved away from New York in 1989. Robert moved to Las Vegas, where he worked as a plastic surgeon and quickly built a community for himself. He made new friends, went out a lot, and appeared to be living a charmed life. Robert still loved flying and would go any chance he got. In December of 1989, Robert met a woman at a party, Stephanie Youngblood who worked as a chiropractor in Vegas. The pair hit it off quickly and made plans to see each other again. One night, Robert called Stephanie and asked, would you like to get high tonight? Stephanie, unaware of Robert's past, agreed to fly around Las Vegas with him. Pretty soon, the duo began dating. Everyone in Vegas who knew Robert found him to be secretive about his past. While in his apartment, Stephanie saw a suitcase that had a luggage tag on it that read Gail Bierenbaum. Thinking this was his sister or another family member, Stephanie asked who Gail was. Robert fell silent and refused to speak about it. Soon after, however, Robert tearfully told Stephanie a tale of his first wife, Gail, who rushed out of their apartment following an argument, abandoning him forever. Stephanie believed Robert and avoided the sensitive topic from then on, and they continued dating without much incident. Robert and Stephanie would go on trips with friends often. They would party on weekends and worked hard during the week. During this time, Robert became very philanthropic and charitable. Once a year, he would fly his own airplane down to Mexico and perform corrective surgery on children born with cleft palates. This was a far cry from the Robert who lived in New York. After a year and a half of dating, Robert proposed to Stephanie. One night, while they were eating, Robert handed Stephanie a fortune cookie that had an engagement ring nestled inside. Surprisingly, Stephanie turned down the proposal. She told Robert they wanted two different things out of life. Robert wanted children and a big family, and Stephanie didn't. She didn't want to burden him with their incompatibilities, so she declined Robert's proposal. Despite her rejection, Robert continued seeing Stephanie. And up to this point, Robert seemed like a great guy. He was kind, hardworking, fun, and took care of others. After turning down his proposal, however, Stephanie began seeing cracks in Robert's shiny new exterior. Stephanie had a friend who claimed to be a psychic and a palm reader. Anytime they would hang out with her, Stephanie noticed that Robert was unusually distant and quiet. There were a few other incidents that alarmed her. One particular day, Robert and Stephanie, along with a couple of other friends, went for a quick flight around Nevada. Upon landing, Stephanie accidentally bumped into the side door. Robert seemed to flip a switch immediately screaming at her, looking as though he was going to hit her. Another trip ended similarly. Robert and Stephanie were on a friend's yacht enjoying lunch. One of the attendants was getting a glass of red wine for Stephanie, when suddenly the wine began spilling out of the bottle and on to Robert. Robert's demeanor immediately shifted into one of rage, but his anger was not pointed at the server. Rather, Robert began yelling at Stephanie. In an eerily similar chain of events, Stephanie demanded that Robert see a therapist if he wanted to continue dating her. Robert agreed, and soon after, Stephanie received a call from his therapist, who told her she was in danger if she didn't leave him immediately. Just like Dr. Stone did for Gail, Stephanie acted quickly and broke up with Robert. After that, Robert began serial dating woman after woman. He would date someone for a few months, propose quickly, be rejected, and then move on to another woman. He continued this pattern for a couple of years before meeting Janet Sholett, a gynecologist in Las Vegas. In June of 1996, Robert and Janet got married and went on to have a daughter together. At some point after they got married, Janet was offered a job in Minot, North Dakota, a smaller town in need of new doctors. Janet and Robert agreed to move there together and start a new life. At first, Robert did not fit in very well, but he quickly made news as a small-town hero. At the North Dakota State Fair, a small boy was bitten on the head by a tiger that slipped away from its owner's hold. The boy was about to be taken by helicopter to the nearest hospital, which would take precious time. Luckily, Robert happened to be in the area, and was able to take the boy to his own medical practice, where he reattached his ear and ensured that his eye was still in place. Robert saved the boy's face and became a small-town hero, lauded by locals. Robert's life seemed to be perfect. He had a successful wife, a booming career, and a daughter. But his dark past would eventually come to light. Though Robert had clearly moved on, back in New York, people still held out hope that one day he would be brought to justice. One of those people was Detective Andy Rosenzweig. The NYPD had been trying to implement a new unit that could review cases that had gone unsolved for many years. What would later be known as the cold case unit began with a couple of detectives named Steve Sirocco and Dan Bibb. Rosenzweig approached Sirocco and Bibb and asked if they would take a look into Gail Katz-Bierenbaum's case to see if they could find something that he just couldn't. Sirocco and Bibb looked through the case file and got to work investigating it immediately. The case was officially reopened, which was met with mixed feelings by the family. While they very much wanted justice for Gail, the family had already laid her to rest, and it had taken them years to find any sense of peace. Reopening the case would open old wounds, but they were willing to do it if it meant the possibility of convicting Robert. In order to get answers, detectives decided they needed to take a drastic step. They needed to exhume Gail's body. When the torso was originally found, there wasn't a lot of testing that could be done on it. Still, the new detectives believed this step was needed as they believed that testing it for DNA now could be fruitful. Elaine and her brother Stephen had Gail's body exhumed and sent for testing. When the DNA test results came back, detectives and Gail's family were dealt a huge blow. It was discovered that the torso did not belong to Gail. The body the cat's family had laid to rest years prior belonged to someone else. The news was absolutely devastating and made for an awful reopening of Gail's case. Sirocco and Bibb were undeterred. They continued investigating with vigor, interviewing people close to Robert before and after Gail's disappearance. They even flew to Las Vegas to interview Stephanie Youngblood, Robert's ex, Sirocco and Bibb knew that Robert had moved on and appeared to be living his best life. They were determined, however, to make sure he knew they had not forgotten about him. When the detective showed up at Robert's front door to ask for an official statement, he was shocked to find out they were still looking into Gail's case. Sirocco and Bibb had not collected much additional evidence in their reinvestigation, but they were hell-bent on bringing it to trial. Armed with quite a bit of circumstantial evidence, as well as many witnesses willing to testify to Robert's violence and uncontrolled anger, the case was finally brought to court. In September of 1999, a grand jury indicted Robert Bierenbaum for the second-degree murder of Gail Katz-Bierenbaum. Thrive Cosmetics should be your go-to makeup brand. Not only are their products made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, Thrive's clinically proven formulas will highlight your features in all the right ways and improve your skin over time. You won't find any parabens, sulfates, or phthalates in anything you buy from Thrive. And of course, none of their products are tested on animals. They're 100% vegan and cruelty-free. I've been using Thrive's Brilliant Eye Brightener on the inner corner of my eyes to brighten them and give my eyes a pop. And their Defying Gravity Eye Lifting Cream is my new obsession because it smooths fine lines and reduces signs of aging and stress. With their Bigger Than Beauty mission, Thrive supports nonprofit organizations by donating funds or products. It's a perfect example of how this beauty brand is going beyond skin deep and inspiring people like me to become a regular customer. You're going to love Thrive just as much as I do. Visit ThriveCosmetics.com Murderish for 15% off your first order. That's T-H-R-I-V-E C-A-U-S-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com Murderish for 15% off your first order. Thrive, going beyond skin deep with their inspiring Bigger Than Beauty mission. What I'm about to tell you will save you time and money, not to mention it'll ease your stress. With recipes like balsamic and fig beef tenderloin or pecan-crusted salmon, HelloFresh can get dinner on your table in about 30 minutes or less. Here's how. HelloFresh delivers fresh, pre-portioned ingredients to your door with easy-to-follow instructions that even my 8-year-old can follow. On average, people save $65 per month with HelloFresh versus grocery shopping, not to mention the time-saved shopping for so many items at the store. One of my favorite cold-weather HelloFresh meals is the chicken sausage and sweet potato soup, which my entire family devours whenever I make it. With HelloFresh, I have more time to chill with my family, binge my favorite TV shows, or just watch funny cat videos on social media. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Murderish14 and use code MURDERISH14 for up to 14 free meals and 3 free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com Murderish14 and use code MURDERISH14 for up to 14 free meals and 3 free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. For those close to the case and living in New York, This was the goal that they had been working towards since the moment Gail went missing. For those who only knew Robert after he moved to Las Vegas, his indictment came as an utter shock. They only knew Robert to be a caring doctor, though a bit eccentric, who helped many people. They could not imagine him being capable of inflicting harm on anyone. Soon after the indictment, Robert voluntarily returned to New York to turn himself in to authorities. The press surrounded Robert and his attorneys any chance they could, but Robert remained silent and refused to comment when asked if he murdered his wife. Robert's trial began on September 18, 2000, with Judge Leslie Crocker Snyder presiding. Snyder was known for being a no-nonsense judge. The prosecution, led by Daniel Bibb, knew they had a very tough road ahead, given that they were presenting a murder case with no body and only circumstantial evidence. They needed to show the jury that nobody had seen or heard from Gail since the day she disappeared and that no evidence had come about to show that she may still be alive. After she disappeared, there was no activity on her bank account or credit cards. In order to convince the jury, they also needed to show them that Robert had a propensity for violence. Detective Dave Sirocco was called to the stand. He began by telling the jury the truth. They had no hard evidence. Everything they had was circumstantial. But he assured them that by the time the trial was over, he would show them just how dangerous Robert truly was. The defense, led by David Lewis, told the jury there was no evidence to confirm that Gail Bierenbaum was even dead they alleged that it was much more likely she had run away after becoming unhappy and mentally unstable. The prosecution was dealt a significant blow when Judge Crocker Snyder ruled that the letter written by Dr. Stone and sent to Gale was not admissible due to patient-client privilege. This was huge, as it was one of the only pieces of physical evidence that could prove Robert had a violent nature. Though the letter itself could not be presented, anyone who had knowledge of the letter could testify to its contents. Luckily, Gail had told a couple of people about the letter before her disappearance. Elaine Katz was one of those people, and the prosecution called her to testify about it and other observations she'd made regarding her sister's relationship with Robert. Elaine, of course, was eager to help the prosecution in any way possible. On the witness stand, Elaine testified to the many odd interactions she had with Robert, the times when Gail called her crying because of his violent actions, and his indifferent behavior in the face of Gail's disappearance. The defense, however, painted Elaine as a scorned sister, a wannabe vigilante who was trying to persecute an innocent man just to make herself feel better. The prosecution then presented the flight log evidence. The Essex County Airport flight log was signed by Robert and dated for the afternoon of Gail's disappearance. By the time Robert's case got to trial, it was obvious that someone had attempted to change the number seven in the date to a number eight, but the number seven was clearly evident in the handwriting. The prosecution claimed the signed and dated flight log proved that Robert was flying somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean during the time he claimed to have been home, waiting for Gail to return to their apartment. The prosecution alleged that Robert had taken Gail's dead body on board the plane and threw it out over the Atlantic, never to be seen again. The defense tore this idea apart. They claimed there was no physical way for a man to fly an airplane over the open ocean then lift a 110-pound body and throw it out of an airplane door while going 100 miles per hour. The prosecution was prepared for the defense to rip their theory to shreds if they couldn't prove it was possible. In anticipation of this, the prosecution performed an experiment to find out if in the same conditions as Robert experienced, a body could be thrown out of a moving airplane. The experiment was simple. On November 11, 2000, investigators rented a Cessna aircraft, one almost identical to the one Robert would have rented. They filled a duffel bag with bags of sand and rice to mimic the 100 pounds of dead weight. They placed the duffel bag inside the plane and instructed the pilot to fly out over the Atlantic and tried to dump the duffel bag out of the plane. Multiple duffel bags were on board the plane to see if the results could be replicated more than once. The pilot took to the air and began flying over the ocean. Two helicopters flew behind the aircraft to film the experiment. The results were overwhelming. Not only was the pilot able to maneuver the duffel bag out of the plane, he was able to do it multiple times from a variety of exits, proving that it was in fact possible for Robert to have disposed of Gale's body over the Atlantic while flying his airplane. The results of the experiment were presented to the jury with the promise that if their investigators could do it, Robert could too. In all, the prosecution called over 30 witnesses to testify on their behalf. From friends to family members to neighbors, the prosecution's witnesses painted Robert as a violent, uncontrollable, vicious person who was capable of murder. The defense had a much smaller pool of witnesses, but they saved one key witness for the end, someone who could turn the entire trial on its head. Joel Davis was a retired textile manufacturer. On the afternoon of July 7th, the same time the prosecution alleged that Gale was dead and being flown over the Atlantic, Davis claimed that he was at H&H Bagel Company. While there, Davis swore that he saw Gail Katz-Bierenbaum sitting with a friend, eating a bagel. If this testimony was found to be true, it would overturn the prosecution's entire case. After the defense called Davis to testify about seeing Gail at the bagel shop, the prosecution knew they had to prove it was not Gail he had seen. On cross-exam, David was asked to describe Gail's appearance but his description was vague. When pressed for more details, Davis said that she was pretty, young, and well-built. The prosecution picked up on the last detail that Joel had mentioned. Well-built implied a body that was defined and voluptuous. Gail Katz was tiny and thin. When asked to further describe the body of the person Davis claimed to be Gail, he motioned to his chest and mind that the woman he saw had a large chest the prosecution pounced gail was known to be small chested barely enough to fill an a cup as her sister would always say there was no way the woman who davis saw could have been gail and he had just proved it the prosecution had dodged what the defense hoped would be their silver bullet in closing arguments the prosecution claimed that everything they presented proved that Robert Bierenbaum was a manipulative, abusive husband with a hot temper that often led to violence. The defense claimed that the prosecution's case was all just a theory, nothing could even come close to being proven. Both sides rested their case and the jury was sent back to deliberate. Just over five and a half hours later, the jury filed back into the courtroom with a verdict in hand. Elaine and Stephen Gail's siblings, sat on the edge of their seats. They had been waiting over 15 years for this moment. Robert Bierenbaum rose as the verdict was read aloud. On the count of murder in the second degree, Robert Bierenbaum was found guilty. The Katz family collapsed, overwhelmed with relief, realizing the fight they had been in for years was finally over. Stephen Katz told reporters outside of the courtroom that the feeling was indescribable. As news made it back to the residents of Minot, North Dakota, that Dr. Bierenbaum had been found guilty, the town was shaken. Despite the Katz family's assurance that Robert was the man that had murdered Gail, many people walked out of that courtroom wondering if an innocent man had just been declared guilty. Robert was facing a sentence of 25 years to life in prison. However, he was an odd case. It's not often that a murderer commits such a heinous crime and then goes on to live a highly productive life as a contributing member of society. This was taken into consideration by Judge Snyder before she sentenced Robert to 20 years to life in prison. Robert had maintained his innocence throughout the trial and even after sentencing. He was taken away without ever apologizing to the Katz family or acknowledging the pain he had caused. Robert was a model prisoner, and in December of 2020, he was up for parole. The news that came out of his parole hearing would be shocking. It had been 35 years since the disappearance of Gail Katz, and Robert had served two decades for her murder. For over 30 years, he had maintained his innocence. On December 30th of 2020, Robert attended his first parole hearing. In a misguided effort to prove to the parole board that he had changed and achieved personal growth in prison, Robert confessed. He told the parole board that on the afternoon of July 7, 1985, he and Gail had gotten into one of their regular arguments. Apparently, Gail didn't want to attend Robert's nephew's birthday party, but Robert had insisted she go. As usual, the argument grew into a screaming match and Robert had had enough. He claimed that all he wanted was for Gail to stop screaming at him, so he attacked her. He knocked Gail over and began strangling her until she was no longer making noise. Like he had done before, Robert realized the gravity of the situation and began trying to resuscitate Gail. When that didn't work, he panicked. Not knowing what to do, Robert stuffed Gail's body into a duffel bag and headed straight for the airport. Just as the prosecution had alleged, Robert put Gail's body inside the aircraft, flew over the Atlantic Ocean, and pushed her lifeless body out of the airplane. Despite his brutal actions, Robert told the parole board that he had grown over the past 35 years. He said that he was immature during his first marriage and wasn't sure how to properly deal with his anger. He blamed his immaturity as the cause for Gail's death and said that he had matured greatly. The parole board was astonished at Robert's confession and outraged by his explanation. Robert was a 29-year-old doctor who had attended years of college at the time of his wife's death. Immaturity, they asserted, had nothing to do with Gail's death. Robert's inability to control his rage was to blame. The parole board concluded that he was still a danger to society, and his parole was vehemently denied. Robert was scheduled for another parole hearing in November of 2021, although as of the date of this recording, no status update could be found. Elaine Katz had sought justice for her sister for years. Though her sister's killer was sent to prison, Elaine still found it hard to move on. She now has a mission that provides some sense of comfort. The PACE Women's Justice Shelter advocates for the protection of women in domestically violent situations and spreads awareness on the pervasiveness of the issue. Elaine frequents the shelter and educates families regarding what domestic violence might look like for their loved ones and how they can help remove a loved one from a violent situation before it's too late. The shelter was honorably named Gail's House to commemorate her legacy. Though Gail's body was never discovered, Elaine Katz likes to think of Gail's house as her final resting place, a place where she can continue loving and caring for others the way she always wanted to. If you or someone you know are experiencing intimate partner abuse, help is available by calling 1-800-799-SAFE. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'll be at CrimeCon in Las Vegas next year. Visit CrimeCon.com to purchase your badge, Use promo code MURDERISH for 10% off of a standard badge. I really hope to see you guys there. If you have 60 seconds of free time, do me a big favor and rate and review Murderish in your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews help new listeners find the show. Also, follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you want more Murderish content, go to Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get immediate access to bonus content as well as other cool perks. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgman. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.